Would you open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7? Exodus chapter 7. Last week we ended with uh, this genealogy, this transition time. Chapter 5, we dealt with the uh, bricks without straw. And then in chapter 6, Moses comes before God and asks these, these questions before him. Well, now God is done talking to Moses. That part's over. Now Moses has a job to do. And he's, God is going to send him to do it. So that's what we come to in chapter 7. Moses is doing the thing that God has called him to do, finally. We've had six chapters of him being reluctant, six chapters of him holding back, and finally he's, he's going forward. Uh, this, this bears mentioning at some point, this is kind of an aside, but something to keep in mind. Um, a lot of the Old Testament is structured around speeches. So you'll get a dialogue back and forth, and there's action in between, and that's kind of defining the structure. So this passage is no exception. It's two speeches, uh, two speeches of God, followed by action, where Moses and Aaron do just as the Lord commanded. You'll see that in the text. So that's, that's a helpful thing to know, helpful thing to orient you to what's going on in the Old Testament. But uh, keep that in mind as we read. So let's pray, and we'll turn to the text. Father, your word... There's a light into our feet and a lamp into our path, and so we come to it today seeking uh, your revelation, seeking your knowledge, seeking your wisdom. Father, would you impart that to us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Impress your word into our hearts, conform us to your image. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word starting in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt Bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt, then bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, did also, by, also, did, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord stands forever. So I know that some of you are memorizing the, the children's catechism. Some of the kids are. Some of you probably have that memorized. And so I have a question for you. I'm not going to make you say it out loud, but hopefully you know it. 
The question is, what befell our first parents when they had sinned? What befell our first parents when they had sinned? The answer, instead of being holy and happy, they became sinful and miserable. Good job. Sinful and miserable. Now, what that question is referring to is the two effects of the fall. As a result of the fall, we're in both a state of sin and a state of misery. So sin, of course, that that refers to our moral impurity. We inherit the guilt and the corruption of Adam's sin from the moment of our conception. And the misery is the natural effects of the fall. It's the part of the curse that has to do with pain and childbearing, toil and work. It's the curse that means we're going to grow old and die. And so these two things, sin and misery, pass to all of us because of what Adam did in the very beginning. And Moses is no exception. He still experiences these two states. He's in a state of sin and misery. He's miserable and sinful. At the end of chapter 6 last week, he repeated his question to God. He says, Behold, I I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And so Moses recognizes his own weakness. He's not able to achieve what God has called him to do. But that's exactly the point, and that's what this passage is telling us today. God knows that we're weak, but he still calls us to the work that he calls us to. Paul summarizes this best in 2 Corinthians. He speaks of praying to God. Paul had this thorn in the flesh, and he prays to God three times, whatever this thorn is, to remove it. But God doesn't remove remove the thorn. Instead, he tells Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect and weakness. God's power is perfected in weakness. And our central weakness, the source of all, our, all of our weaknesses, is, of course, misery and sin, the fall. Today's passage is evidence of that. Moses is a man of misery and a man of sin. But God works through both misery and sin to reveal his power. So we're going to look at this in two parts. First, we'll consider how God's power is perfected in misery. And second, we'll look at how God's power is perfected in sin. So first, God's power is perfected in misery. In verse 1, we get this this odd little statement from God. Listen again. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, that's a really striking thing for the Lord to tell Moses. So in English, most translations add this connecting word, like or as, but that's, that's really just an addition for clarity. Literally, what this says is, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Now, if you know anything about Egypt and the pharaohs there, Pharaoh is, is seen as this divine figure. He's understood to be the image of the highest gods. He's, he's very likely to be the wealthiest and most powerful man in the world, and he is completely aware of that. We've already seen that in chapter 5. Remember the phrase there, when, when Moses says, thus says the Lord, Pharaoh says, thus says Pharaoh. Well, now it's time for reckoning has come, and God decides he's going to put him in his place. And he does that by placing Moses as God over him. So look what Moses and Aaron will say to him, starting in verse 2. He says, you shall speak all that I command you. Your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel out from among them. Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded. Now, of course, God says that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to leave that alone for right now. It's, it's going to come up as we talk about the plagues in the coming weeks. But the key thing that I want you to notice here is verse 5. Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. In a lot of ways, that's a thesis statement for the first half of this book. It gets repeated multiple times, both in reference to Egypt, that they will know that he is the Lord, but also in reference to Israel. Last week, we talked about one of the reasons God saves his people is for the sake of the covenant. And that's true, but it's not the only reason. There's actually something behind that that runs deeper than that. And it's that God's first and most fundamental purpose for saving his people is to glorify himself. Now, you and I shouldn't seek our own glory, but God is actually infinitely worthy of glory. It's the right thing for him to do. So that's the topic for another time as well, but God is seeking his own glory here. His purpose in doing this whole thing, his purpose in, in doing this is to reveal himself to Egypt, to Israel, to everyone involved, to reveal himself as the only true and the only all-powerful God. And how does he do that? Well, verse 7 says, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. So Moses, the man whom the Lord had appointed as God over Pharaoh, is 80 years old. I hope I don't offend anybody by saying this, but that's pretty old. He lived to 120, but that doesn't change the fact that he's, he's not a spry youngster anymore. In fact, this, this whole being God to Pharaoh thing is actually his third career. He was a prince before, then he was a shepherd for 40 years. So you have this old man. He's not quite Egyptian. He's not quite Hebrew. He has some kind of speech impediment. He's been living in the desert with sheep for 40 years. And this is the guy that's supposed to be God to Pharaoh. This is the guy that's supposed to lead God's people out of bondage. That's who it is. You see, God takes pleasure in using what is naturally weak to achieve his purposes. He likes to use the people and the things most affected by the misery of the curse to achieve his purposes. If you think about David and Goliath, you know Saul could have taken it upon himself to put on this armor, to take his spear to go into battle. And that would have been an interesting and engaging story if Saul had done that. But it's a better story when a child takes a slingshot and kills the giant. Power is impressive. Power is engaging. Power is interesting. But weakness is more impressive. The same applies to Jesus, by the way. He didn't have to humble himself. He didn't have to submit himself to miseries of this life, to hunger and to thirst. He didn't have to submit himself to persecution and to death. But to forgo those trials would be, rob, would be robbing God of his glory. And so it must be this way. God's power must be made perfect in weakness and misery. This passage, I think, especially speaks to those of you who are aging. It's evidence that you don't age out of service to the church. Your role may change. The, way that you, the things you do may change. But that doesn't mean that we don't need your gifts. And so as far as you're able, you ought to persist in service. But it goes, it goes beyond just that. The reason that God doesn't zap you up into heaven as soon as you're converted is that he has something for you to do. There's a reason he doesn't send out his angels to run the church in our stead. You know, they're not sinful. They could run the church much better than we do. 
But when he uses something that's sinful and broken, the result is all the more glorious. So rejoice in your weakness, because God is magnified in your weaknesses. God is magnified when children continue in faith despite their parents' inadequacies. God is magnified when the most tone-deaf among us sing joyfully with the saints. God is magnified when your devotion is stale, and you pray through it. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should wallow in your failures. We should seek to grow. We should seek to improve. But there's great comfort in knowing that even in our imperfections, those can be a means of God working in the world for his glory. God's power is perfected in misery. Second, God's power is perfected in sin. Look at God's second speech, starting in verse 8. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, and you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. So this, we need to pause here for a second because something really significant has happened. You'll remember that Moses did this miracle back in Exodus 4. But there are some important differences between, between these two events in Exodus 4 and Exodus 7. Most obviously, Aaron is the one doing the miracle here, and Moses did the one in Exodus 4. We've had a change. Moses is representing God now, and Aaron is his prophet. But there's also another thing going on. There's, in Hebrew, there are two words for snake. There's, there's the word nahash, which is a more common word, just means snake. The serpent in Genesis 3 is actually a nahash, as is the one in Exodus 4. But in verse 8 of chapter 7, we have a change, or in verse 9 of chapter 7. A different word is used. It's, it's tanim. It's the only the second time in the Hebrew Bible that this word is used. The first time is in Genesis 1, and there it means sea monsters. So the difference is that a nahash is a regular snake. And then all of a sudden, in Exodus chapter 7, we have a tanin, which is like a dragon or a sea monster. So when Aaron throws down his staff in, in verse 9, it's not the same kind of snake that we've seen before. It's not a normal little snake. It's a big, powerful serpent. Keep that in mind as we continue to verse 11. It says, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So at this point, we need to be thinking on a couple different levels. Part of what's going on is that we're getting a little taste of the coming plagues. You, you have to know a little bit about Egyptian religion to catch this. But each of the ten plagues corresponds to an Egyptian god. So, for example, the Egyptians have a frog god. And so when the frogs come out of the river, that's intended as a slight against the frog god. And so the wise men and the, the sorcerers and the magicians are representatives of these Egyptian gods. And so when they throw their staffs down, they're throwing down, they're casting out their gods. Now, Aaron does a miracle. When Pharaoh brings these guys out. They're able to replicate it. It's possible they're just playing tricks, but I think they're probably doing something actually demonic here. So when they, in either case, what they're doing when they throw down their staffs is that they are manifesting their own gods before Aaron's staff. And Aaron's staff, of course, swallows them up. But if we, if we zoom out a little bit and look at broader biblical context, you'll find that, that this is a major turning point in the reputation of the snake. Obviously, the first snake we have 
It's in Genesis 3. It's a symbol for evil. He's cursed. He's a sign of the tempter. He's the one who leads Eve into sin. But here in Exodus chapter 7, the reputation changes. We have a new serpent who comes as a sign of God's power. And in fact, the next time we see a serpent in the Bible is in Numbers. When, Aaron makes a, or when Moses makes a bronze serpent and lifts it up for the healing of the people who are being bitten by snakes. Jesus himself cites that in John 3 as a sign of his own suffering on the cross. So taking all that together, what is happening is that Aaron's serpent, Aaron's staff, is just a small picture of Christ's work. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The early church father, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, he reflects on these two passages together, 2 Corinthians and Exodus 7. He says, This is therefore rightly applied to the Lord. For if sin is a serpent, and the Lord became sin, the logical conclusion should be evident to all. By becoming sin, he also became a servant, which is nothing other than sin. For our sake... He became a serpent that he might devour and consume the Egyptian serpents produced by the sorcerers. Of course, Christ takes on our human nature. He remains completely free of personal sin. But when he's lifted up on the cross, a great exchange occurs. As he's lifted up, the sins of his people are poured out on him, are laid upon him. And just as Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin. But here's the crucial point in your own life. If you look at verse 13, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh's heart was hard. It was callous. And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, so is yours. That's why in Deuteronomy we get this command to circumcise your heart. It's repeated again in Acts when we hear, those, when those who hear the preaching of God's word are cut to the heart. These things occurred before the eyes of Pharaoh. And in fact, we're about to see ten more plagues. But he did not listen. He hardened his heart and he rejected. You and I have a lot more than Pharaoh did. We have 66 books. We have these ten plagues plus a whole lot more. These 66 books are filled with warnings about sin and the promise of the gospel. We're surrounded, in, in the society we live in, we're surrounded by faithful churches filled with faithful Christians. And if Pharaoh had no excuse, then neither do we. Our call, as we read this Wednesday, is to rend our hearts before God, and our call is to repent and to believe the gospel. God's power is perfected in sin. He became sin, who knew no sin. I opened with the children's catechism. But as we close, I want to point to point you to something in the shorter catechism that kind of opens this up a little bit. Question 20 says, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? Answer, God, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of an estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. The fall brought us into an estate of sin and misery. And this life will be full of those things. But we have this hope. 
that a redeemer has come. He came to take on all of our sin. He came to take on all of our misery. He came to purchase us back from the curse. And on the other side of his resurrection, all of that sin and misery has a new meaning. Yes, in this fleshly life, it is weakness. But in God's eyes, it is power. His grace is sufficient to take all of your problems, all of your sins, all of your failures, and to use those for his glory. That's, that's the great promise of the gospel. That we are no longer a people without hope. That we are a people who have been given new life in Christ. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen.